So we are in our third installment of Acts 19. Acts 19 is a very important uh, uh, chapter, as we know. It's uh, really describing Paul's two-plus years in Ephesus. It's the, he spent more time in Ephesus than he did anywhere else. Uh, and so uh, it's uh, very significant, uh, the fact that he was there for so long and what takes place. And the way Luke describes it in the 19th chapter, it's very interesting because there are three separate stories taking place here, okay? Now, believe it or not, uh, in a little bit later uh, here, uh, in the next chapter, later on, Paul is going to actually admonish the leadership of, of uh, the, the, the Messianic or the, the, the believers who are leaders, the elders of, uh, of Ephesus. Uh, we'll, we'll read that in a little bit later on. But here, there's three different stories that he tells, that Luke tells, of Paul's exploits, and they all say something in particular to us. The first one that we saw had to do with the people that had only heard of the immersion of John, right? And they had not heard of the immersion of Yeshua. Uh, and so uh, uh, that was uh, a very unique, and, and how uh, uh, Paul explained to them uh, about Yeshua, they were immersed, and they had the very same experience as, as those believers in chapter 2, and as Cornelius did in chapter 10, uh, and that even in Ephesus, even in this uh, a significant uh, uh, a city, people could come to know Messiah Yeshua in the same way that the Jews did in Acts 2. Uh, and, uh, and so we see uh, that in the midst of the city that hosted temples uh, of uh, Greek gods uh, and uh, that engaged very much in magic, magical arts and sorcery, uh, that the gospel was uh, the good news of Messiah Yeshua was being uh, uh, preached, right? And then we saw the second uh, story uh, having to do uh, with uh, this issue of uh, magic uh, and incantations uh, and people trying to do miraculous things uh, but, uh, you know, uh, through incantations and, and, and magic. And uh, we learned uh, last time that, wow, isn't it amazing what happens here, that hearts are changed. And uh, we said that uh, the demonstration of people forsaking these evil ways uh, by sharing their secret, uh, their magical secrets and then going so far as to burn their materials, right? Uh, it really demonstrated, in a way, kind of what, you know, repentance uh, and the issue of forsaking, not only turning, in, uh, turning away from evil in our minds, but forsaking, sometimes in very tangible ways, things that hold us back. You know, it reminds me of a passage in uh, the book of Hebrews, just uh, to mention it, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, where uh, we read at the beginning, uh, therefore, since we have, such, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, not only run the race, but remove the things that get in the way. And they're not, all, they're not only thoughts and ideas. Sometimes they can be just tangible things that we have that may remind us of evil or that, you know, may remind us of times in our lives or have something to do, you know, with some very ungodly activity that we need to actually forsake and throw away. Uh, and, um, and that's very important because it's kind, in a way, it's kind of like tashlich in, in a way. When we uh, think about our sins and then, th- and then throw uh, the, uh, the stone you know, uh, into the water. Sometimes it's more than a stone. Sometimes there may be materials that we have. Now, we're not into book burning here. You know what I'm saying? But there may be things. There may be books. There may be other things that we need to forsake. Uh, and we just see it in this text. And it's a good reminder uh, 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 to us. Right? And of course, when Luke writes this uh, here in Acts uh, chapter 19, very importantly, uh, he says here at the end of that section in verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So, you know, he's making this case here. In earlier chapters, it would be um, Peter and John and or perhaps even Paul were being persecuted by Jewish authorities, right? Uh, or the Thessalonians, uh, or the Thessalonians were, were coming after them, right? Uh, and, and then it'll say, but the word of God uh, continued, you know, uh, to be spread. Uh, and so here it has to do with, uh, you know, some real pagan uh, dark activities that are overcome by the gospel. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Luke's point, generally speaking, in these narratives and acts is to show that nothing, that nothing uh, gets in the way of, the, of spreading uh, the good news. Okay? That nothing gets in the way of spreading the good news. There may be hurdles, but remember that we read in Romans uh, uh, chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God for deliverance, the power of God for salvation, right? And so that's the point he's making. And so now here, beginning in verse 21 now, is the third story that he tells. And, it, and this is what he says. So in uh, Acts 19, uh, 21. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay. So he stays in Ephesus for a while. Okay. He's been there a long time. He taught for two years. Uh, he got to know people in the city, as we'll see. He actually befriended some of the, of the leaders of the city, right? Uh, and he became a, a, known, uh, a known quantity in the city. People knew uh, who he was in this very pagan city of Ephesus, filled with magic and temples 
and all kinds of things like that. Then we read, And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Remember that uh, the Messiah followers uh, were known by a variety of different titles. One of them was the way. All right. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our property, our prosperity, depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him, they wouldn't let him go in. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and report and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. These would be like civic, civil authorities. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. And when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them uh, all as they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, this is quite a story. Uh, quite a story. It could take weeks to unpack it, but 
as I like to say, if it was an MSI class, we'd take weeks to unpack. All right. Uh, so first of all, what we see here uh, is uh, in, the big, in the big scheme of things that the good news has created an impact. The good news has created an impact in this city. It has created an economic impact, and it has created a social-slash-religious impact, okay? That people are coming to know Messiah. As a result of people coming to know Messiah, their worldview changes. The way they conduct themselves change. And it is affecting the pocketbooks of those who make the statues. And what the owners of those businesses, which was a big business in, uh, uh, you know, in Ephesus, they were up in arms over it. And of course, they're also up in arms that it is actually creating a, uh, not only an economic impact, but that fewer and fewer people are going to the temples. Fewer and fewer people are engaging Artemis, this is a problem, right? Uh, and so uh, we see that not only are people embracing the good news, the other side of the coin is uh, that those who are not that interested uh, in the good news uh, take offense at this. And they raise a, uh, they, they raise a, real, uh, we could, a real ruckus over this. And uh, they want to do something about it, right? So we see that, you know, they basically, they're having their meeting um, maybe in the, uh, you know, the, the hall of the uh, Fellowship of Idol Makers International, number 220, right? Uh, and then uh, they march, they march, uh, you know, to the theater. And here is where they're basically going to indict and hang uh, you know, Paul, that scoundrel, and these others who are his co-conspirators so that we can get back to normal, right? Now, what's interesting is that when they get there, there is like total confusion. And it is quite an interesting uh, little thing that Luke uh, uh, tells us here uh, that it says, and some of the crown uh, concluded it was Alexander. Who is this? Who's Alexander. Alexander is some Jewish guy, right? I, I, you know, uh, since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. You know what we don't know here is, we don't know if Alexander is a Messiah follower or Alexander is a, a Jewish person and they're all confused because there was much confusion. And one of the things it tells us is that in these days, really what the Ephe these Ephesian people who were very upset were thinking is that uh, this Paul and his people are convincing people to worship the God of Israel. Like, you know, the, and that believing in Yeshua is just part of the, the, the Jewish way, you know? Uh, unlike in our world where, you, you know, uh, we certain most people do not understand believing in Yeshua as the Jewish way or part of the Jewish way. I mean, Jewish people don't understand. There's as much confusion today. Jewish people don't understand it. Christian people don't understand. You know, 
Uh, and, and so uh, that's what's, that, that's what's uh, uh, going on. Uh, and, uh, of course, Paul, being himself, wants to go in there, you know, and, and make the defense. But the, his disciples tell him, no, 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 you know. Uh, don't go in there. And these other civil authorities also tell him don't go in there. Now, it could be because they had befriended him, or it could be because what everybody was afraid of in all these cities was don't upset the apple cart uh, because the Roman authorities will come down hard on us. And so what we want is smooth sailing, all right? Uh, and so then, uh, you know, it is amazing where he talks here about the town clerk. We learn a lot about how these cities function. There was a town clerk, right? Uh, and he basically says, look, look, we already know that they're not breaking actually any laws. And notice very carefully what he says. He says they are not blasphemers of our gods. That is a very interesting statement. It's going to lead to something here. Uh, uh, but in other words, they're, they're upsetting the apple cart. People are upset because people's lives are being transformed. And it is affecting the economics, and it is affecting the social, cultural relationships uh, and dynamics. Okay, That is what we see taking place. Certainly, this has uh, some great lessons for us to learn, uh, indeed, about uh, the good news, right? One is, and something that we have seen more than once here in Acts, and that is when the uh, good news is uh, shared, it's always going to come with some form of persecution because it goes, it flies in the face of all of of existing norms, and many traditions, and, and things of that nature. In any culture, at any time, okay? I, it is really, I, I don't think there's anywhere where you can find that the good news was shared and everybody just simply agreed with it. You know, like, it, you know, like that is the, the, the cultural norm. It's not the cultural norm and it affects everything. Uh, and so, uh, certainly, uh, there is a persecution. You know, um, we in our world are very concerned about the culture around us uh, in, you know, in myriads of ways, right? Uh, whether we're talking, uh, you know, about uh, immorality, uh, ethics, uh, whether we're concerned uh, simply about the... the the decisions that leaders make, regardless of who those leaders are, things today that uh, are considered uh, the status quo just a few years ago, I, you know, would never have been such. And more and more, I think that, you know, many of us uh, look at our culture, uh, you know, and say, well, the ship has left the dock. You know, uh, the, uh, the moorings of uh, an ethic and morality that is commensurate with, with what's in the Bible, with, which is like what's in the Bible, has really like sailed away, right? 
Uh, and so therefore, we, get, we can get very frustrated and very angry about it. And we wonder, what is it that we can do? What should we be doing? What should we be doing? Right? And we come up with, uh, you know, lots of different things about being uh, proactive uh, uh, in, the, uh, in our society and things like that and getting involved in the political process or simply commenting forever on the political process, which we just love to do. We just love. It's like an addiction. Right, commenting on the political process, right, and things that we uh, uh, like or uh, don't like. Well, it's kind of interesting if you go back to uh, the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua says this. He describes, uh, you know, at the beginning of the chapter in Matthew chapter five, he describes kind of like a way of life, really, when you think about it in the what we call the Beatitudes. Remember, Jack Zimmerman talked about them a few weeks ago when he was visiting us, right? I, and so about being poor in spirit, mourning, being gentle, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, being peacemakers, all those uh, kinds of things. Those are uh, attributes of people that follow the Lord, that uh, walk in the way of a Messiah Yeshua. And, uh, and then he says in verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things falsely on my account. By the way, it's on my account, not because, not because um, you know, uh, you're being persecuted for opinions about myriads of things in our culture. That's not what it's talking about, Okay. Uh, and it's also not talking about, like, you know, if we happen to be obnoxious or something. All right? It's not talking about that either. Right? This is being persecuted because we're identified in Yeshua in the way that we conduct ourselves and how we talk about him. That's what it's talking about. And by the way, if we receive absolutely no persecution on any level, we have to ask ourselves, hmm, do people even know that I'm a Messiah follower? Do people know, you know, am, am I even known for that, right? Okay, it's a good question to ask. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, verse 13 and 14 are very important to us in relation to this passage in Acts 19. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will you how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house." Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, there are thousands of devotional things we could say about salt and light. But the point Yeshua is making is that salt is good when you can taste it. If you can't taste it, it's good for nothing. 
That's what he's saying. I know it's a preservative and everything else, but what he's saying is, if you can't taste it, it's good for nothing. And if you have a light, you have a light and it doesn't work. It's good for nothing, right? See, that was a good uh, uh, illustration right there. Thank you. Okay, good. Uh, it's good for nothing, all right? Uh, and, uh, and so if we are salt and we are light and no one tastes the good news, no one tastes Yeshua, no one notices, in other words, no one notices that he's there, right? Like if you have... Um, you know, I am notorious for not using salt on food. I mean, you would, if I cook something, you'd never want it because it's bland, okay? I can tell you right now. So I don't add salt ever to anything. I, know, I don't even know how much to it, you know. But, you know, if there's no salt uh, on your food, right, generally speaking, you're going to say, wait, i got to add some salt. I, I, I can't taste it. And so if you don't notice it, if you put salt on something and you, you can't, it's not, you don't taste it, throw the salt away. What's the point? That's Yeshua's point, right? Uh, it is worthless. So if nobody notices, if we are salt and nobody notices Yeshua in us, it's a waste. If we are light, but nobody sees Yeshua in us, it's, it's worthless. It's worthless. That's what Yeshua is saying. And so, it's very important that we think about being salt and light and being noticeable uh, as we read in Acts 19. Boy, they were salt and light and people's lives uh, were, being, uh, were being changed. Okay? Uh, and, and it's very interesting uh, that the, the anger was not because... Paul and his cohorts were burning down uh, the temples or walking around with placards saying, Artemis is not a god, stay away from here. Uh, or uh, or uh, were they uh, saying, boycott uh, the, uh, the statue makers. Boycott the statue makers. This is not of God. This is wrong. Boy, boycott them. Maybe people came to Paul and said, we need to boycott them. We need to like tell people not to go to the idol makers because these things are I, 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 idolatrous. And can you imagine when you know, Paul would say, no, we're here to preach the message and the message will change people. Say, but oh, so you don't care? You don't care about the idol makers, right? No. See, it's very important that we read that they say to the people who are so, the, the authorities say to the people that are so upset, they have not blasphemed our temple. That tells us that Paul was not going around bashing, he was not bashing Artemis. He was not bashing the idol makers. But what was happening is, is that the good news was making a difference in the hearts and in the minds of the people, and that in a very short period of time, the culture was actually changing. And that is a great, great lesson, uh, you know, uh, for us. Because how change really comes is when hearts, are mind, hearts and minds are captured. And when God gets a hold of hearts and minds, that's where real change 
uh, uh, takes, uh, real change takes place, okay? So, you know, one of the things I think that it's important for us to understand is um, when we talk about the good news, uh, and in a way, um, what the good news is, I think it kind of helps us, uh, kind of helps us here. May I suggest that the good news is not simply a set of propositions that we embrace. Okay, if you believe this, you believe this, and you believe this about Yeshua, I, you know, then you're saved, okay? That there's much more to the good news. Certainly, it includes embrace Yeshua, you know, I, and be saved from your sins, clearly. But it included, uh, it included a, a little bit more, and I think it's important uh, to understand that because in Acts 19, earlier on in the chapter, in verse 8, it says, He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Okay, about the kingdom of God. And so... <clears throat> When we think about what the good news is, may I uh, uh, suggest to us that uh, it encompasses the fact, the good news is that God is the king of all creation, and he has manifested himself in the person of Yeshua, you know, who has taken our sins upon himself, died for our sins, rose from the dead, right, and empowered us now and that we can live for the true king uh, and, and be delivered uh, from uh, our, our, our sins and a, and a, you know, and a, and a way of life uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is very hurtful and, and very bad and, and so on and so forth. And that, that you know, uh, is very helpful for us to understand. For example, if you go back to Isaiah... Even, you know, in the passages that um, we've been looking at over the, you know, the Haftorah portions, okay, all right, uh, in Isaiah uh, here, I, we read, uh, for example, um, in uh, chapter 40, right, in uh, verse 9, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear, and say to the cities of Judah, here is, uh, here is your, uh, your God. And then later on, of course, we read, uh, uh, you know, your God reigns. Uh, your God is king. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, very important that we understand that we're, we're, we're not just embracing the truths about Yeshua, but we're embracing who he is and what he did, you know? And, uh, and so when we talk about uh, the good news and we, when we talk about embracing uh, Yeshua, uh, there is more to it uh, than just simply, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, right? Uh, it is... He is the king. He is the messianic king. And we now are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, and we dwell in him. And we have an identity uh, in him. Uh, and there is not only a spiritual transformation, but there is moral and there is ethical transformation. 
in the way, uh, in the way that we live. Uh, and so, for example, you know, um, if, if we go back to Isaiah, to chapter 52, I guess I should talk about it. I was going to skip over it. Chapter 52, because it includes even our uh, Haftorah portion in 54. Usually, you know, we're helicoptering our way into these passages, and we don't see how they kind of all fit together. But in chapter 52, I, we read here, I, just in verse 7, I guess, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns or your God is king. Now, if you move down to verse 13, 13, 14, and 15 in Isaiah 52, uh, we see how this takes, what, what this means, how this takes place. Notice it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what has not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then in chapter 53, basically the process of the good news uh, is described. So you have the statement, your God reigns, this is the good news. It's a prophetic passage in Isaiah that comes to pass in Yeshua. Yeshua is... The good news. Uh, he, you know, our God reigns in the person of Yeshua. Uh, and as it says in 13, 14, and 15, he will prosper. He will be high, lifted up, greatly exalted, yet he's going to suffer. But at the end of the day, people will shut their, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. The way it comes to pass is that this servant will come. He will be completely misunderstood. He will suffer, he will die with the sins of the people placed upon him, and he will be raised from the dead. And he will be not only a sin offering, but he will be a trespass offering, as it says at the end of Isaiah chapter 53. And as a result of that, God will reign in Messiah Yeshua. Then in chapter 54 and 55, it's kind of like the altar call uh, after chapter 53. It says, immediately, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travide. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married women, says the Lord. Like, this is really going to be great. As a result of the work of the suffering servant, we will have a manifestation of God as king in Israel, and there will be great blessing. And as I wrote in the Darash, notice what it says in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood will, will be remembered no more. For your husband is your maker, uh, the name of the Lord, uh, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So on and, and so forth. And you can read... Uh, through this in chapter 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cause. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? In other words, as a result of the coming of the suffering servant, embrace him and there will no longer be shame. There will be acceptance. There will be unconditional love. There will be satisfaction. And that is indeed what is promised. And when we embrace the king of Israel, when we embrace the Messiah, when we embrace the good news from Isaiah in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah, something begins to happen inside of us. We no longer desire to buy statues of Artemis. We no longer want to hang out at the, at the temples that, that, are, that we grew up in, so to speak, the pagan uh, uh, you know, ex- experience that something has happened on the inside that has caused us to simply act differently outside. There has been the beginnings of transformation. And, you know, in the Brit Hadashah, this is what it's all about. If you go to a passage like Colossians chapter 3, right, we read here, if you have been raised up with Messiah, keep seeking the things above where Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things of Yeshua. Set your mind on his kingship and all that that implies. And what does that mean for us in our calling to go and make disciples of all the nations? That is our calling. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Uh, Whether it be and introducing people to Yeshua or growing people in the, you know, in the Lord. This should really consume us, you know, Uh, for you have died and your life is hidden with Messiah in God. When Messiah, who is our life, I mean, how much more does that mean than being consumed by, uh, by the Messiah, right? is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For on the account of these things, the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created you. Now, when he says right after this, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freedman, but Messiah is all and in all. Let me just pause on that verse and say, that, yes, we know, I mean, uh, we're a messianic congregation. We know that, uh, you know, we remain men and women. We remain whatever ethnic identity uh, uh, that, that we are, but we all come to God the same way. But it means even a little bit more than that. It means that he is our king. And so, therefore, the things that have divided us do not divide us in the Messiah. The things that divide us in the natural do not divide us in the Messiah. Isn't this what he said to the Ephesians in his uh, letter? Uh, In uh, uh, Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 2, 
uh, when we read, um, uh, He Himself is our peace who made both one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, hatred. Okay? And then, of course, when He says, is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, He's saying the law of commandments contained in edicts, not the commandments themselves. But the point, the point I want to make is he abolished enmity and brought reconciliation. So we really need to think deeply if we really want to make a difference in this world that we need to be consumed with the good news, consumed with sharing it, consumed with explaining to people that, boy, you know, there really is a God and his name is, you know, is Hashem and Yeshua is the Messiah, uh, you know, and uh, there is an alternative, really an alternative way of life uh, you, you know, and empowering and being able to endure this life and, and we should be able to reflect it in the way that we carry ourselves, in our deportment and in the words that we use. But sadly, our salt is tasteless and our light is off and we have mingled this with all kinds of cultural things, all kinds of culture all kinds of other things. We have watered down the message of Yeshua to almost zero. And we really need to think deeply if we want to see the same kind of change that they were seeing in Ephesus, that our, our salt needs to be tasty and our light needs to be bright. And we need to recognize that, you know, Yeshua is our king and I do live for him. He is indeed my life. And it should be reflected then in how, whatever way we communicate, that's how it should be reflected. And so it's very interesting what it says, like in verse 12, going back to Colossians, you know, after he said Messiah is all and in all, and so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you also. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Messiah richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your heart to God. Do you notice that? Wow, that sounds an awful lot like uh, Ephesians 5.18 that says, be filled with the Spirit with the same, uh, with the very uh, uh, same um, manifestations. Let the word of Messiah richly dwell within you and be filled with the Spirit, according to Paul, has the same manifestations, Okay. And whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what your hobby is, no matter what you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then he goes on to like family relationships and other kind of relationships and how that, how that plays out. Uh, and uh, uh, so how important is this for us? Uh, I think that if when we look around us and we look at the culture, I think if we were all going to be honest, we'd, we'd say, uh, you know, yeah, it's one thing to share the good news. It's another thing to make a difference in the world. 
I think that's how most of us think, because it's how we act. <laughs> it's what we say. It's what consumes us. And so, uh, you know, my prayer is that as we approach these holidays, we really seek transformation and really seek to live in that messianic worldview where we love God with every ounce of our being and we look through the lens of everything, through the lens of Yeshua the Messiah. And our real burning desire is to see people embrace the kingship of God in Messiah Yeshua. Not just believe some, some suppositions, but embrace him. Embrace what he is about and really be a disciple of Messiah Yeshua. And that's how you see a change. You know, let me just leave us with, a, with an interesting thought. Uh, and that is something that we read about in Luke chapter 15. It's all, I always find this fascinating. When it says um, in verse 1 of Luke 15, now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Did you ever wonder, why did the tax gatherers and the sinners come to Yeshua if he's the holy man, if he's the most holy man that there ever was? What do sinners and tax gatherers find attractive about him? I would think they would be repulsed by him and they'd want to run away from him. But you see, uh, he was not one. Uh, the only people that he was uh, seemingly in the text, seemingly really angry with over and over again are the religious people, not the sinners, you know, not the tax gatherers, but, but the religious people, because they're not, they're being hypocrites. And so may we have the same kind of love for this world as Yeshua had. And may we be attractive to people. May we be not known simply as haters and bashers, but lovers and really engage people and notice that Paul was here for a long time. He wasn't in and out of Ephesus. You know, uh, one of the great things about being a congregation and not just, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, going from uh, place to place and having meetings and sharing the good news and going somewhere else is that you really get to know people. And, you know, we have had people that have come here for years before they came to know the Lord, before they embraced Yeshua. Years. Never like, you know, up against the wall, buddy. You know, uh, that's just not us. Uh, and so in whatever line of work that we're in, may we be able to uh, embrace people who are, who are engaged in activities that we might find personally repulsive and, and ungodly, but, but love these people. And may they be able to see Yeshua in us and in the way that we explain the, the, the good news, that it's, there's, um, there's an understanding there, yes, of repentance and, and the need to repent of sin, but that it's a good thing in our lives, you know, to uh, be a follower of a God. And may we uh, make a difference in the 21st century. All right, let's pray. Lord uh, God, I just uh, pray, Lord, for us as a community that we might really uh, wake up uh, and uh, realize that the good news really is the power of God. The power of God to change worldviews, to change people's hearts, to change people's lives, Lord, and therefore change the world. Uh, God, I, uh, I pray, Lord, I, that there would be a real renewing of the mind 
a real renewing of, of the mind and uh, which uh, manifests itself in transformation. God, I pray that, that we would not feel defeated uh, when we look around us, but realize that, uh, uh, that what we're looking at around us in one sense is the domain of darkness. And so what do we expect to reform the darkness? But Lord, may we realize that there really is the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of David, that, that there really is the kingdom of God. And we look forward to that day when the living hope that we have will be manifested in the return of Yeshua and he'll sit on his throne in Jerusalem and all the nations will come and they'll learn Torah and uh, live a godly way. But God, you have called us now to begin living that way now. May we live that way now in community so that you know people can see how this is manifested in our lives. And may there be a real... Um, uh, a real transformation that takes place in our lives. And uh, God, we thank you that uh, wherever your good news really touches, there is real change. May we be uh, the conduit of the, of the good news to this world. And may this world really know that the God of Israel truly reigns and that there is real life and hope. We pray in Messiah's name.